Hello, welcome. Thanks for listening. This is a history of Indonesia. To get a sense of how important Srivijaya is to the way Indonesians now view their history, I need to introduce you to a new term. Well, it was new to me at least. In the early 20th century, Nusantara was one of the alternative suggestions as a name for the nation that we know as Indonesia. Nusantara has a few meanings. Nowadays it's synonymous with the Indonesian archipelago. But back in the pre-colonial era, Nusantara meant the broad Malay world, including modern-day Brunei, Malaysia, Singapore and parts of Thailand. It's also a Javanese term, so it had the unfortunate connotation of colonies or conquests of Java in the region. That may have been an interpretation that Javanese were comfortable with, but a perception they were definitely trying to avoid at the time of independence. Remember, there was no certainty of where the nation's boundaries would eventually end up. Maybe the new nation would be called Java, if that was all the territory they could prize from European hands. To think of the new nation as Nusantara was to make an audacious claim to much of maritime Southeast Asia. But it wasn't a claim without legitimacy. The maritime empire of Srivijaya was a cosmopolitan empire of Malay sailors, global traders and Buddhist monks that dominated this part of the world for centuries, creating many of the attributes that the nationalists identified with the notion of Nusantara. Srivijaya's origins go back to where we left off last episode, with emerging kingdoms dotting the archipelago and a dominant Funan to the north. Back in the early centuries of the Common Era, a boom in trade had enriched Southeast Asia and connected many disparate communities. The Pax Romana to the west and the Han Dynasty in the east provided huge, stable markets with a seemingly endless appetite for the exotic goods of Southeast Asia. The foremost beneficiary of this early version of globalisation was the Kingdom of Funan. It spanned the Mekong Delta and the Malay Peninsula, controlling the crucial Isthmus of Kra that linked East and West trade. Funan's success would continue into the 400s, but as trade networks matured, Funan found its favourable geography less and less of a natural advantage. To some extent, it was the victim of its own success. Let me quote from uh, A History of Early Southeast Asia by Kenneth Hall. It's been one of my main references. Quote, Initially, neither the Indians nor the other international traders using the ports of Funan were interested in the Southeast Asian specialties. But as the international transit trade at Funan grew, sailors from the Sunda Strait area to the north in western Indonesia began to introduce their own products for the Chinese market, beginning with some that might be construed as substitutes for goods from farther away. Sumatran pine resins were substituted for frankincense and benzoin. A resin from the plant related to the laurel family, also known as gum benjamin, was substituted for delium myrrh. Soon the sailors from the western Indonesian archipelago began introducing their own unique new products. One of the most important was camphor, a resin that crystallised in wood and that was valued as a medicine, as incense and as an ingredient in varnish. The most highly prized camphor came from Sumatra's northwest coast. Products also began to arrive from Indonesia's eastern archipelago. Aromatic woods such as garawood and sandalwood, a specialty of Timor, became important commodities, as did Borneo's camphor, and the fine spices of the Maluku Islands also began to appear in international markets. End quote. Goods from the Indonesian archipelago were in greater demand. Sailing techniques and technology had improved, making the alternative sea routes less uncertain. 
both of these factors made the Straits of Malacca and the Sunda Strait between Sumatra and Java more attractive. Early Indonesian kingdoms started to chip away at Fanan's supremacy. But rather than one kingdom replacing Fanan, an era of greater competition began. Chinese records show an increase in diplomatic missions from Funan and its competitors. Traders from the lucrative markets both east and west of the archipelago were able to play these small Southeast Asian kingdoms off one another. One port would gain favour at another's expense, and this had a couple of consequences. Firstly, for Funan, trade became a volatile and declining share of its economy. It was now taking much more effort and just wasn't as profitable. As agriculture became more dominant in Funan, there was less and less appetite to pursue risky maritime trade. What had been a complementary relationship, agricultural surpluses supplying a steady income and the ability to support a trading hub, was now a source of tension. Funan slowly withdrew from trade and became more of an agricultural kingdom. Its impacts continued to echo into the next millennium. Its agricultural base would go on to influence the way the Khmers ran their empire, and much of its maritime economy shifted south to the archipelago. The treacherous Straits of Malacca were becoming safer, and the advances in open ocean sailing meant the Sunda Strait was another viable alternative. Along with the Isthmus of Kra, there were now three maritime routes linking east to west. But no kingdom could expect to dominate this new immense area. Stretching from the Malay Peninsula, through Sumatra and into Java, there'd be no monopolising of the trade routes, as Funan had been able to do with one single choke point. And this established the pattern for the next couple of hundred years. With the backing of a Chinese or Indian partner, one kingdom rose, had the scale to support passing trade, and reaped the windfall that came from being a trading hub and a trusted ally. Inevitably, successful ports tried to extract more and more from the passing trade, making their rival ports relatively more attractive. And of course there was the ever-present threat that those not benefiting from passing trade would engage in piracy. As well as competition, there was also cooperation. Malay sailors continued their crucial role in the region. I keep comparing the sailors of the region to steppe nomads, and the similarities really do stack up. The overland silk roads were threaded between the deserts and mountain barriers of Central Asia. This wasn't just to avoid uh, inhospitable terrain. Over time, the locals had constructed elaborate channels and wells to bring underground and mountain water to the Silk Road, supplying the outposts with life-giving, fresh, cool water, an essential improvement that helped locals and the passing traders. In the same way, Malay sailors improved the maritime journey by investing in small island infrastructure that wasn't immediately beneficial to them. Maybe not as obvious as Central Asia's waterworks, the sailors dug wells, but they also planted coconut trees. In time, the trees were very useful. The coconuts themselves were an emergency food supply, and the rest of the tree could be used for running repairs. The leaves could be turned into matted sails, the trunks used to replace timber, and the fibre used for rope. Just as in Central Asia, the mobile men of Southeast Asia adapted to hostile environments with innovative solutions competing for scarce resources, but also cooperating for the long-term common good. They both connected more settled empires to each other, empires that often looked down their noses at these people from outside their civilised realms. Malay sailors transported people as well as goods. 
Buddhism in India, though still significant, was on a slow decline, but expanding elsewhere in Asia. Pioneering pilgrims from the east travelled to India to visit the birthplace of Buddhism. These wandering holy men sought passage to and from India with Malay sailors, and over time Buddhist culture spread via the trade routes. This period between the fall of Funan and the rise of Srivijaya is bookended and documented for us by two Chinese monks. Half a world away, around the end of the 4th century CE, a middle-aged or maybe older Chinese monk set off on a pilgrimage from northwestern China to India. His aim was to visit the birthplace of Buddhism and collect texts to bring back to China to further Buddhist scholarship. Even though the Silk Road was now well trodden, his journey was still arduous. He travelled mainly on foot and needed to cross very unforgiving terrain, extensive deserts and narrow snow-covered mountain passes. He looped through Central Asia to arrive in the Indian northwest in 402 CE. Fa Shen is one of the earliest Buddhist pilgrims we have records of. After spending several years in India and Sri Lanka, he returned to China, this time via the maritime route. The passage home was equally as challenging as the overland path. The open ocean on a leaky boat, carrying years' worth of precious Buddhist texts, must have been a nerve-wracking trip for the ageing monk. On his way home he stopped at Java, the Taruma kingdom we mentioned in the last episode, where he found little, if any, interest in Buddhism. The records of Farshin are valuable to our story because they lay out geographic and cultural markers. They show India and Sri Lanka as important Buddhist centres. Malay sailors are travelling in decent-sized boats and confident enough for a Chinese monk with priceless cargo to trust their sailing skills. The tenuous links that initially brought various Asian cultures together are still fragile, but becoming less so. His records are a complementary source, confirming some of the information we get from Indonesian stone inscriptions. Here's a taste of Fajin's journal. Quote, I took passage on board a large merchant vessel, on which there were over 200 souls, and astern of which there was a smaller vessel in tow, in case of accidents at sea and destruction of the big vessel. Catching a fair wind, we sailed eastward for two days, then encountered a heavy gale and the vessel sprang a leak. The merchants wished to get aboard the smaller vessel, but the men on the latter, fearing that they would be swamped by numbers, quickly cut the tow rope in two. The merchants were terrified, for death was close at hand, and fearing that the vessel would fill, they promptly took what bulky goods were there and threw them into the sea. The gale blew for thirteen days and nights. When we arrived alongside an island and then at ebb tide, they saw the place where the vessel leaked and forthwith stopped it up, after which we again proceeded on our way. This sea is infested with pirates, to meet whom is death. The expanse is boundless. End quote. His writing adds colour to a period where we still rely on matter-of-fact edicts on stone inscriptions and the evidence of archaeology to understand the past. His journey also illustrates that the trade routes, although not initiated to promote cultural exchange, gradually strengthened the social links between cultures around the Indian Ocean, Central Asia and back to East Asia. Buddhist influence in Southeast Asia increased over the next century. Archaeologists have found bronze Buddhist statues throughout the archipelago, as far east as Sulawesi, dating from the 5th century. And the monks aren't just religious pilgrims, they're more like diplomats, academics or even intelligence officers. They gather knowledge about and develop relationships with other cultures to take back to their homeland. 
they offered their administrative and cultural services to local rulers along the way. We shouldn't forget the rhythm of the monsoon winds that regulated the time spent at foreign ports. This created the space for the cross-pollination of ideas to occur while waiting for the seasonal change. But Buddhism was one of many cultural influences permeating Southeast Asia at the time. Before we look at Srivijaya in detail, let's zoom out and see how the world had changed by the end of the 7th century. In Europe, the Western Roman Empire had fallen and Byzantium had been challenged by the Sasanian Persians who conquered right up to modern-day Turkey. While these two heavyweights exhausted each other, a new power burst onto the scene. From the 630s, the followers of the Prophet Muhammad quickly took over territory that had been Rome's for centuries, expanding into North Africa. They conquered to the east as well, eventually butting into another great empire of the time, the Tang Dynasty in China. The two fought a battle around modern-day Kazakhstan in 751. So once again we have two stable powers framing the Southeast Asian region, a unified, increasingly Buddhist China in the east, and Islam as the new gatekeepers in the west. It's interesting to think about the different stages Buddhism and Islam were at in Southeast Asia during this period. Both faiths end up following a similar pattern, but Buddhism has about a thousand-year head start. Buddhism is peaking during the Tang Dynasty. It's a key driver of the international system of trade, culture and diplomacy. Whereas Islam is in its infancy, probably still unheard of in Indonesia. And Islam will mirror the spread of Buddhism in Southeast Asia in that it became strongest along traditional maritime routes and was used to bring unfamiliar groups closer together. Indonesians took on elements of Buddhist culture for many reasons, spirituality being only one of them. It's another example of how the archipelago developed distinctive but not isolated societies. There's an ever-changing mashup of local and distant cultures, layers folded and mixed and flipped in all sorts of combinations. Islam, in a few centuries' time, will add another very significant layer to Indonesian culture. And I should remind you that Buddhist Trivijaya was a forgotten layer of Indonesian history, completely wiped from the collective memory. It was Europeans that pieced together the clues from Chinese, Arabic, Indian and other texts in the 20th century. Basically, George Sides postulated that several different place names in these ancient sources were different names for the same city or empire, and subsequent archaeological evidence backed up his theory. In the mid-600s, Srivijaya was one of many successful river ports in Indonesia. But long before, maybe 100 to 150 years, it had grown rich on maritime trade and relationships with its upstream neighbours. Located in the south of Sumatra, it was well-placed to benefit from trade passing through the Malacca and Sunda Straits. The Chinese at the time were not adventurous sailors. Their shipbuilders were mostly preoccupied building vessels for their own intricate canal networks. The Chinese seemed happy to mostly outsource overseas trade until the 10th century when their inland territory contracted. So key to Srivijaya's early success was that in the early years of the Tang Dynasty, China chose Srivijaya as one of its favoured partners in the region. Palembang, on the Musi River, was the centre of the kingdom. Not only did it offer a well-protected port, but also a solid agricultural base, and the river reached deep into the hinterland, so a variety of goods could be obtained from Palembang, including many highly valued forest products and gold. In fact, gold had attracted outsiders to Sumatra for centuries, 
The name itself translates to land of gold. Middle East sources recount a daily ritual in Palembang of the monarch dropping a gold bar into the river to appease or thank the various gods. We have our second Chinese monk to thank for describing the early days of Srivijaya. Yi Qing visited the capital of Srivijaya in 671. He stayed for months, improving his Sanskrit, amongst other things, while preparing for his journey to India. He described a wealthy port city, rich enough to support a large temple complex. Here's a quote describing what Yi Qing thought of uh, Palembang, the Srivijayan capital, and how valuable it was to Buddhist pilgrims. Quote, There were more than a thousand Buddhist monks whose minds were entirely turned to study and good works, and they consider every possible subject. If a Chinese monk wishes to travel westward and consult the original scriptures, he should stay here for a year or two and prepare himself for the journey to India. End quote. Srivijaya became a Southeast Asian staging point for Buddhist pilgrimage, a place to prepare for cultural exchange. The Srivijayan rulers, who already held the local spiritual titles of Lord of the Mountain and Lord of the Sea, to reflect two aspects of their growing realm, also embraced Buddhism as yet another symbol of their far-reaching power. And this was the environment Yi Ching wrote in. After travelling to India and Sri Lanka on his pilgrimage, he returned a decade or so later, and things had changed. Srivijaya had started its expansion. It had conquered a rival river kingdom to its north, and was now the dominant power in the Straits of Malacca. Yi Ching continued his work in Srivijaya, translating 400 Indian texts into Chinese. He also wrote an account of his journey, and finally returned to China in 695. He was celebrated at the time and received a lavish welcome home. Even Empress Wu, one of the most powerful women in all of human history, was there to greet him. Srivijaya's rapid expansion continued. Our sources, besides Yi Qing, are several threatening stone inscriptions around Sumatra that demand loyalty to Srivijaya's king or risk a curse. These inscriptions are also where we first see the Malay language converted to written form in an Indic script. Srivijaya's leader from 671 to 702 was Jayanasa. He's the one responsible for the expansion north that Yi Qing documented. Whether he realised the significance of his attack on Jambi, the rival river basin to his north, is an open question. Strategically, it put Srivijaya in charge of the two major rivers that went deep into the Sumatran highlands, and Jambi was an even richer source of gold than Palembang. It was also another alternative port for Malacca Strait traders. Whether by accident or design, Jayanasa took Srivijaya from city-state to regional power, a scale of kingdom that maritime Southeast Asia hadn't seen since the decline of Funan. And this was just the beginning. By the end of Jayanasa's reign, Srivijaya was the leading power in Sumatra and had started its expansion into Java gaining a toehold first through what was likely a conquest of the Taruma Kingdom in West Java. I plan to cover Java in more detail next episode, so today I'll just focus on Srivijaya's interactions on the island. Our best guess is that, in Java at least, there was a relatively peaceful rise in Srivijaya's power during the 8th century. A Buddhist Javanese dynasty, the Salendras, cooperated with Srivijaya. The two had existing cultural links through Buddhist scholarship, and their economies complemented each other's. The central Java plateau that the Salendras controlled was 
a productive rice growing area that could feed the extra numbers living in or travelling through the growing Srivijayan realm. In return, Srivijaya could offer a steady supply of traded goods coming through its networks and its navy kept the sea lanes open and safe for the Salendras. Eventually, the two dynasties intermarried with the Srivijayan ruler often taking the Salendra name. The nature of the Srivijayan kingdom, though, was an empire in flux, shifting allegiances that could never be taken for granted. The Salendra dynasty had a complicated relationship with Srivijaya. Academics still don't agree on its role. Sometimes the Salendras held the Srivijaya Maharaja title, and other times they were pulled towards other central Javanese powers. They had to straddle the worlds of highland agriculture and lowland trade, of Buddhist and Hindu Java. Each generation of the dynasty had to wrestle with a variety of tensions. Some were ambitious expansionists, others sedentary temple builders. The dilemma the Salendras faced was typical for Srivijayan rulers. Srivijaya became a patchwork of states with a shifting capital. Sometimes the ruler resided in Sumatra, sometimes Java. Internal ructions were just as important to stability as outside forces. The paramount leader never dominated like a Chinese or Roman emperor did. The chiefs under the rule of the Maharaja retained a great deal of power, and power frequently rotated between them. The most common comparison I've seen is to liken Srivijaya to Venice, a maritime city-state, a middleman that leveraged its trade and diplomatic relationships to punch above its weight. But I think a neater comparison is that Srivijaya was an empire more like the city-states of the Hellenistic world, a confederation of cities that could present themselves as a united realm but were riddled with internal divisions. But neither of these comparisons really articulates the nature of statehood in Southeast Asia. The shifting centre and rebalancing of alliances were a rational way to manage the cross-currents of wealth and power. Rather than trying to stamp out the internal divisions... Srivijaya's genius was, perhaps, that it embraced its cosmopolitan nature and used it to absorb the frequent shocks that were inherent to Southeast Asia and the many countervailing forces that buffeted the region. I've come across a lot of material that suggests that Asians in general are less warlike than Europeans. The reasons given vary from religious practices, trade diffusing the need for violence, and geography acting as a barrier, keeping people apart. And there are enough examples to back up the idea. Now, I'm not sure if this is an interesting tangent or a rabbit hole I should be avoiding, but it is a question that I've found myself asking. Are Asians more or less warlike than Europeans? The simple answer is Asians are about as prone to use violence as any other human group. Warfare in mainland Asia was a regular part of life and was just as brutal, if not more so. Maybe in asking the question, I'm revealing more about my own Western biases than anything else. There is a reoccurring theme in Western literature going back to ancient times of Easterners being weak, effeminate and pampered, and these tropes might be at play. A more precise way to articulate the contrasts I'm trying to highlight might be to say that violence took on different forms and was of a different value in Southeast Asia. Violence was a key part of Srivijaya's rise. The raids that subjugated its northern neighbour in between Yu Qing's visits knocked out a major rival for control of the Malacca Strait and enriched Srivijaya's rulers. And who knows how cooperative the Salendras would have been if Srivijaya hadn't already conquered territory in Java on the Salendras' doorstep. 
but there does seem to be less of the large-scale decisive battles that we see across Eurasia in Southeast Asia. Rather than the pressure building up, culminating in a massed gathering of troops that finally decided who had the monopoly of violence in that area, the nature of violence in Southeast Asia seems to be more often than not raids, banditry and piracy that frequently release the pressure of competing interests. So there was a constant threat of violence from petty banditry and piracy, violence almost as nuisance value, through to large raids to secure control of a port. Not to downplay it, I'm sure it was just as gruesome as anything in the West, and many raiding missions do seem to have been decisive moments. But the goal was to minimise disruptive violence, as much as hoping to monopolise it. Quite often the tools of statecraft and trade were preferred and diffused violence at a low level before it grew to a scale that became an existential threat. All that gold from the Sumatran interior could buy off the region's pirates and put them to work for the empire, collecting taxes and incorporating them into Srivijaya's culture. So violence was just as important a weapon in Southeast Asia as anywhere else in the world. That organised violence took on a form that suited the area's geography and dispersal of people. And trade and statecraft often realised, inch by inch, a lot of the same results that big battles achieved abruptly elsewhere. Through violence, trade and intermarriage, by the 9th century, Srivijaya was the major maritime power in the region. Not only did it control Sumatra and the western half of Java, but it expanded to the Malay Peninsula too. It controlled large parts of the South China Sea, the Java Sea, and most importantly, all three maritime routes linking East Asia to the Indian Ocean. From north to south, it stretched more than 2,500 kilometres. It was a true hegemon, and it began to act like one. Rather than a wealthy regional outpost or hopping-off point between destinations, it was now an equal to some of the big players in the region. Srivijaya had levelled up. All goods and people travelling east and west by sea had to pass through Srivijayan territory and they clipped everyone's tickets on the way through. Already rich before the expansion of the empire started, Srivijaya's rulers were now probably some of the wealthiest people on the planet. I think it's worth cautioning against a connect-the-dots history here. Yes, Srivijaya's expansion made it richer, but external factors maybe played just as important a role. In the mid-8th century, China had lost power in its west. The Anlushan Rebellion, the continuing rise of Islam and a very strong Tibetan Empire all played their parts in disrupting China's overland trade routes. Maybe Srivijaya's rise wouldn't have been quite as grand if overland trade had been more reliable and more profitable. As important as trade was, Srivijaya's economy was now very diverse. As well as being the major emporium of the region's exotic goods, it had a large agricultural base, it was a centre of scholarship, and its influence extended way beyond its shores. In 860, the Srivijayan rulers donated significant riches to Nalanda University, the centre of Buddhist culture in India. It was at this time that the major Malay migration to Madagascar took place. Srivijaya's influence could be felt across the Indian Ocean, and beyond to East Asia and the Arabic states. By the 10th century, the internal and external tensions that Srivijayan rulers had skillfully managed started to fray. The Salendras lost influence in central Java and now called Sumatra home. 
It's hard to say what exactly was going on, but it seems the eastern Javanese kingdom of Mataram was pushing back against Srivijayan dominance. The products of the eastern archipelago were becoming increasingly important, and maybe the rulers in East Java still had some control over that trade that they tried to leverage. Srivijaya made successful raids against Mataram in the 900s, and Mataram countered with raids of its own on Palimbang in the late 900s. It's unclear whether Mataram was acting independently or as a proxy for another power wanting to cut Srivijaya down to size. Ultimately, Srivijaya defeated the Mataram kingdom mostly by fueling internal dissent. The sands were certainly shifting under Srivijaya as the year 1000 approached. China was enduring another period of instability between the Tang and the Song dynasties and the spread of Islam's influence continued unabated. Srivijaya also lost control over the Isthmus of Kra, and Chinese records show an increase in tribute visits from Srivijaya and India's Chola Empire, a sign of rising competition. It's easy to imagine Indian Ocean traders getting frustrated with Srivijaya's stranglehold on East Asian trade, particularly when overland options were restricted. They either had to pay taxes on the way through or risk naval attacks. The Srivijayans claimed in the Chinese court that the Cholas were their vassals. Maybe this was the final straw. The Chola Empire, under Rajendra I, from the southeast of India, launched a massive naval attack on Srivijaya in 1025. Very few, if any, naval attacks of this scale had ever been seen in the region or over such long distances. Srivijaya may have entered the big league, but that meant dealing with bigger rivals. The Cholas broke Srivijaya's monopoly on trade. Srivijaya rebounded quickly and remained a significant power for centuries, but the Chola attacks marked the end of Srivijaya's golden age. It's coming up to 100 years since Srivijaya was rediscovered. Srivijaya played a pivotal role in the region for several hundred years. It's one of the big two empires that Indonesians now look back on as a unifying symbol for the nation. Here's a neat summary of Srivijaya and its place in Indonesia's sense of history and nationhood from Jean Gelman Taylor's book, Indonesia, People and Histories. Quote, In Indonesian histories, Srivijaya represents a past forgotten, a past recreated by foreign scholars, and a past recovered and packaged by intellectuals of the nationalist movement for Indonesian identity within an Indonesian state. Until the published research of the French scholar Cedis in the 1920s, neither Sumatrans of the Palembang area nor Indonesians anywhere else had ever heard of Srivijaya. Cedis' discoveries and interpretations were published in the colony's Dutch and Indonesian language newspapers. In the nationalist imagining, Srivijaya became evidence of early greatness, of archipelago unities, of Sumatran importance a great empire of the western archipelago to balance Java's Majapahit in the east. Srivijaya and Majapahit were packaged to prove the unity of Indonesian peoples prior to the Dutch colonial state. End quote. So Srivijaya is important because it was a large empire across multiple islands of the archipelago. It told a story of unity and a story older than the histories of the local aristocrats, it's easy to see why nationalist politicians embrace the rediscovery. It's interesting to wonder whether Indonesians could have even thought of themselves as Indonesians without the rediscovery of Srivijaya. It's the one empire that isn't completely dominated by Java. 
It allowed Indonesians to imagine a multicultural union of the archipelago. Maybe Indonesia was only possible once the full glory of Srivijaya was rediscovered. We'll call that stumps for this episode. Just a quick note, a couple of you did point out a silly error I made last time. I messed up my monsoon wind directions. I referred to a breeze blowing from south to north as a northerly, but of course, that's actually a southerly. I think it was clear what I was trying to say, but what I did say was incorrect, so thanks for picking me up on that. If you want to get in touch, email anotherhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Facebook, History of Indonesia Podcast. Twitter, at anotherhistpod, A-N-O-T-H-E-R-H-I-S-T-P-O-D, anotherhistpod. Tell someone you know, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes. It all helps. Again, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you.